Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Ben Pitcher about Back to the Stone Age, race and prehistory in contemporary culture. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Nice to be here. Um, I mean, this is an incredibly interesting book. um, And in some ways, I'm slightly puzzled as to how to, uh, to frame the first question, because Cultural studies and then something like archaeology as an academic discipline uh, and the idea of, of prehistory aren't usually things that we put together straight away. And I'm kind of fascinated by where the idea to connect uh, these two, I guess, you know, academic areas, but also um, this almost kind of cultural phenomenon that you write about in the book, where, where that came from? Yeah, what, I mean, for, for me, the question is around what, what, what we do in cultural studies, what, what cultural studies is. And in my understanding, cultural studies is a project to understand, if you like, the, the texture of life as it's lived in a, in a particular historical moment, you know, how people conjuncturally in a, in a particular time and place make, make sense of the world. So, to me, cultural studies is is um, it's omnivorous. It's interested in everything, and there's a sense in which I talk about this right at the, the the start of the book. There is a kind of um, uh, an intentional kind of amateurness to this that that I'm not interested in expert knowledge, but I'm interested in how dominant understandings of a particular topic get made, because that's how to understand social change. And I think you know personally, I'm I'm astounded at the. The, the lack of curiosity about what is culturally dominant. I mean, it, it struck me that we should all be studying that, whether whether our focus is, is political or cultural or social, or whether we're interested in social justice or, 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 or social change. So, I mean, you know, we, without wanting to be too shady, I think a lot of the um, Anthropocene debates in the humanities and social sciences end up doing things like applying theory to fine art practice. And I think that's that's absolutely fine. And I've read some really great stuff. But isn't it also interesting to try and understand why, for example, millions of people are reading that that Sapiens book? And, you, you know, that's the, 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 you know, hence, if you like, the focus of this book. You know, it, it, it's exploring why prehistory has become really important in contemporary culture. Um, I think every age has its own versions of the prehistoric. And so what I try and do in this book is to explain what's kind of characteristic of the the contemporary prehistoric imagination, the way in which um, our ideas about prehistory can give us insights into the contemporary, into contemporary obsessions, contemporary anxieties, fantasies, desires. Um, there are, incidentally, I was just thinking about your question, some elements of classic cultural studies that, that actually do do prehistory. I mean, it's not a, it's, it's not a topic that hasn't been covered. Um, so uh, Raymond Williams, um, People of the Black Mountains, a kind of two-volume novel, um, is a 25,000-year is a meditation on the relationship between people and power. I would make the case that that's, that's sort of... Um, 
uh, prehistoric cultural studies. Um, there's lots of good writing at the moment that sort of thinks with geological time. So Hugh Raffles' uh, book, The Book of Unconformities, is really good here. Um, and that was a book recommended to me by uh, Ron Ware, whose latest book, Return of the Native, situates the English landscape in a time frame that links the contemporary to history to prehistory. And I think in a way, prehistory is quite zeitgeisty at the moment. I think for reasons maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go on and talk about. Um, I mean, another reason for engaging with prehistory is biographical. Um, you know, my thesis here is that prehistory has a particular resonance in contemporary culture, and partly that's self-reflexive. It's me um, being drawn to asking those questions. Intellectually, I'm interested in the relationship between biology and culture, and I don't think anyone has really answered that big question particularly well. So the book is an attempt to kind of think through some of that. Um some of it is also more experiential. So I find myself, while I'm researching this book, taking up running, thinking about the relationship between that practice and um, our evolved bodies. I find myself going to standing stones, thinking about our relationship to the Neolithic. I find myself at a pottery class, throwing pots and thinking about the kind of physicality of craft that people have been engaging with for um, millennia. Um there's also, you know, it's also kind of touch with my own mortality. Um, I think, you know, I'm 46. While I was writing this book, I went past the age at which my dad died, uh, the age of 44. This sometimes gets a bit cliched, but there are some kind of big existential questions here about the finitude of individual human life, you know, thinking about those hundreds of thousands of years of, of human history, um, questions people have always been asking, what's it all about? Why are we here? How can we not be interested in this? I mean, I think everybody should be writing books about this. So there you go. There's, it, there's an answer. No, it, 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 I think you've done a, a sort of fantastic job of giving a sense of both, you know, the, the really big ideas that the book engages with, but also that the book is quite fun, um, particularly actually the uh, we, we might try and talk about uh, what you are and what you're not allowed to do at Stonehenge. Um, and, you know, the kind of like tightly controlled uh, space uh, that that is that comes up towards the end of the book. To, to begin with, though, I want to pick up on something that you'd mentioned almost in, in passing there, which was this idea of kind of prehistory almost having a sort of certain dominance in in contemporary culture. And, and, and I think you call it, you know, a kind of an important reference point in contemporary culture. And you'd mentioned actually that it, it's got a range of, um, almost different kind of functions. Um, and I'm interested to know a bit more about that, really, both in terms of what does prehistory like do in contemporary culture on the one hand, but also kind of why does it do that as well? What, why, um, I guess, are we so kind of interested in it? Yeah, well, in my reading, the, the, the broader context here is one that we, 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 we kind of live and breathe. Global heating, environmental catastrophe, we are on a kind of daily basis, whether it's through news stories or whether it's through our kind of reflection on, on, on our own circumstances, we are having to make sense of human life in a, in a vastly expanded time frame. And so, it, you know, this isn't a kind of uh, esoteric uh, area in the sense that, that geological time, evolutionary time become kind of necessary ways of thinking about who we are as a species, thinking about our, 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 our species survival, if you like. Um, you know, so there's a new story about uh, cave bears or, or woolly mammoths kind of 
emerging rotting from the Siberian permafrost. You get people like Greta Thunberg telling us that catastrophic climate change will most likely lead, she says, to the end of our civilization as we know it. The future, to many, looks really, really bleak. And so I think, and this is the thesis of the book, really, that we are turning to prehistory to think about how to live in a healthy way, to to think about what makes us happy, to think about living sustainably. Um, you know, Frederick Jameson famously uh, said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think there's a sense in which prehistory is not the answer to that, but 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 prehistory is like a version of the end of the world. It, you know, it is an idea about what happens when the collapse comes. Um, or it might be a version of the human that offers some kind of resources for our own survival. There's a sense in which sometimes people return to prehistory to recover some sense of some kind of intrinsic human qualities. Um, you know, I, 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 so I think prehistory is is of our contemporary moment. I think in the in the 20th century. Um, Capitalism could agree with communism with that kind of Latin American slogan, backwards, never, forwards, ever, that sense of the kind of onward teleological march of, of the future as being the kind of solution to all of, the, all of our problems. Um, and now I think that has slipped. I think um, there is a, a, a kind of lack of confidence in, in, in many areas towards those kind of um, those, those, those narratives of future perfection. Um, I recently read, uh, it's not in the book because I didn't read it before I wrote the book, but um, the last book that uh, Bauman wrote before he died was called Retrotopia. Um, and he talks in this book about the angel of history, you know, the, the, the famous um, Benjamin's version of uh, Paul Clay's uh, image there. And in, 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 in Benjamin, the angel of history is um, looking at the past, but being pushed inexorably into the future and and what Bauman does is to to kind of reverse that and actually his angel of history is looking kind of aghast at the future at the catastrophe to come and is being sort of inexorably pushed pushed back towards the past to to kind of try and 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 make sense of um uh, their situation and to make sense of what to do next so you know it's it's my argument that all those big existential questions about who we are, where we came from, and what we are like, are becoming increasingly important. Um, And that is why prehistory is is, is so kind of resonant in in, in our contemporary moment. I suppose the shame of that possibility of of something like an imagining of prehistory offering alternatives to contemporary capitalism gets expressed in things like paleo diets and um, sort of really grim sexist and racist views about society. Um, And I suppose it's the sort of um, downside where where you get these moments of of sort of imagining of alternatives that um, how these things get, you know, sort of translated um, often in, in contemporary um, capitalist societies and, and media economies is into things that are quite, um, I suppose, you know, retrograde, 
um, regressive um, and unreconstructed. And early on in the book, you, you try and grapple with not just things like the paleo diet, which is a really obvious manifestation of this, but you try and kind of link in various ideas about gender and race too. And, and I wonder actually if you could sort of tell me the story of the paleo diet as a route in to thinking about this broader idea about paleo conservatism. Okay. All right. So, so there's, there's 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 quite a lot going in there, on on in there that maybe I I I try and untangle in it um uh in a in a in a slightly different way. So let's talk about paleo diets, right? Let's let, let let's do that um in a minute. Um, I think I first to 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 do justice to your question, which I think is 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 a good one. Um, I want to just think first about the how race and prehistory are kind of caught up together um because i think that that that's a, a the, the kind of starting point that i begin with in the book and it, and it, and it's one that that um we need to do to kind of understand what 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 you rightly uh, refer to as some of those kind of regressive iterations um so i mean i think my my understanding is that race and prehistory are both ways of processing identity and difference and 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 um race does this in the current historical moment it does it uh synchronically if you like um but it's my suggestion that we also have this diachronic understanding of human difference that ideas about human evolution and development are to do with the passage of of, of time ideas about where we came from um those others if you like that are our our ancestors rather than our others that are our human contemporaries. Okay. And, and so what I'm trying to do in this book is to think about the connection between these two. Um, I don't think it's, it's hard to see where this, where this originates. Um, it's been a very kind of longstanding perspective, actually, that, you know, the, the Greeks were doing this 2,500 years ago, um, making a kind of correlation between geographical distance and cultural difference the idea that the the further away someone was the more primitive they were the more kind of backward they were um the more sort of strange or or, or different they were um and this this carries on into modernity um so the west begins to encounter its own pasts in non-western and indigenous contexts so there's a kind of temporal dimension to stuart hall's racial binary of of the west and the rest there's a sense in which um, time is 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 absolutely of, of of significance here. So you know, in in imperial modernity, um, these are obviously stories of, about white supremacy. They tell stories about white people as racially advantaged, and they are used to delegitimize indigenous cultures as as backwards, as as, as primitive, um, to legitimate imperialism and colonialism in terms of racial superiority. Um, you know, if you can prove you're, that you're the most advanced, um, uh, then you are best placed to decide how land and, and resources can be used, even if indigenous people got there first, if you like. Um, so there, there is this kind of pejorative um, racialization that goes on. But at the same time as this kind of negative association of indigenous and prehistoric difference, there are also, and fascinatingly, this kind of layering of positive connotations too. So the, this kind of combination of prehistoric and indigenous difference 
becomes a kind of critical outside to modernity. It becomes a way of critiquing the destructive tendencies of the modern world. And so prehistory becomes simultaneously this, this, this kind of bad thing that we've moved on from, this thing that was um, primitive and underdeveloped, and also a sense of a, a kind of human essence to which we might we might return, we might go back to. Um, and we can kind of see this all the way through um, modernity. We see it in modern art. We see it in Freudian and Jungian uh, psychoanalysis. We see it in our contemporary kind of working understanding of organic forms of human sociality, you know, the, the, the ideal size of a functioning community, for example. Um, and so what we are intrinsically like comes to be defined through this kind of weird combination of prehistoric and racial otherness. Um, and this continues for as long as we continue to make that kind of modernist separation of nature and culture, and we tie it to notions of development and progress. Um, there's an Australian geographer called Kay Anderson that's written on this. There's a, a black feminist scholar, uh, Sylvia Winter, who uh, writes about race as intrinsic to the, if you like, to the definition of the human, the definition of human nature. So if prehistory becomes this kind of site for defining our sense of who we are, where we came from, what we're like. Um, and if our understanding of human nature is intrinsically racialized, as, as I suggest that it is, it becomes a really big and important project to try and redefine and redescribe the human in a way that doesn't reproduce the, the dynamics of racism. Because I think um, typically this is so often what happens. Um, and I think, you know, to, to, to go with the example of... Um, that you mentioned of paleo diets, there is this sense in which um, that's exactly what's happening. So paleo diets, if you like, are a kind of um, a kind of time traveling that um, people will consume uh, raw food. They will consume what the, what they uh, imagine prehistoric people used to eat incorrectly often. Um, but that's not you know that's that's, that's kind of subsidiary to the the the, the argument here. Um, people um, consume paleo foods um, in a way to kind of escape some of the ills of the present. So, you know, forms of industrial food production depend on pesticides, fertilizer, forms of extraction from the global south. They create poor quality processed food for mass markets. And what paleo foods do is enable consumers to kind of distance themselves symbolically from the ills of the present by sort of inhabiting this kind of virtuous market niche and I, this this form of, of um, time traveling through prehistory is a kind of motif that comes up again and again in in the book the way and i mean in this example the way in which the economically privileged can kind of slip outside of a polluting and unjust and unsustainable present and enter this symbolic domain of the prehistoric past where they become healthier they become better they become a more natural class of human being so there's a, it, it's a kind of interesting sort of privatized division of the social where you kind of escape from the present through a, a kind of isolation or, or, or regression from it. Um, and, uh, yeah, as I say, the, these, these forms of kind of escape into the distant past um, give people ways of um, asserting their own distinction and the, the, their own privilege. I, I'm really struck by the story you told there that, you know, we, obviously the payoff of, of, of that sense of becoming better humans is also a story, as you'd mentioned earlier, about the kind of sense of who we are as a 
it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it, as a species? Mm. And one of the things, I mean, there's there's lots of ways actually the book engages with with that question, and and you describe um, sort of various contemporary behaviours. You, you, you engage with um, popular science. That the, the book you mentioned, *Sapiens*. But we, we, within what you were saying, I, I was really struck by the parts of the book that try and grapple with the way genetics and genetic science have really kind of come to the fore to kind of give us a sense of what human identity is and, and, and sort of who we are. Mm. And I wonder actually if you could connect that, uh, I suppose, story of the things like the intertwining of nature and culture and then their separation, the question of, of the sort of um, racialization of forms of identity with this phenomenon whereby genetics will kind of tell us everything about um, who we are. Mm. Yeah, well, well yeah. genetics is really fascinating to me because... Um, uh, genetics has this very specific status in a, in a, in our contemporary culture as providing a um, an, an an answer. Um, I think that the, the kind of explanatory power of, of genetics is to do with our fetishization of data. Um, is to do, and of course, you know, we're, we're used to kind of running apps that monitor our our, our you know performance in terms of our you know we, we go for a run or or, or or we get an alert that we're um overly stressed or you know there's a sense in which um uh the the contemporary um digital data analytics it it, it becomes a way of understanding again not not correctly <laughs> um but becomes a metaphor um so people will understand uh, the dominant sort of understandings of genetics is that genetics provides, if you like, the, the, the data that runs the human machine. Um, there's a sense in which if we can access our genetic data, we can find out the truth of who we are um, uh, on, in, in, in some kind of intimate and, and, and profound um, level. Um, it, 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 it's reproduced in, you know, people do genetic tests to sort of find out their propensities, not only to certain kinds of diseases, but also to... Um, uh, aptitudes and affordances. So, so um, you know, there are genetic products that biomedicine produces to kind of convince us that um, that, that that genetics is 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 um, an ultimate answer to, to to who we are. And of course, there are lots of critiques of this. There are critiques of the, the power of DNA. Um, Donna Haraway's talked about a kind of gene fetishism, and there is a there is a sense in which. Um, the kind of popular understanding of the ge- of, of, of genetics um, enables us to forget the way in which human beings are kind of biosocial, um, and I think in, in 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 my reading there is a sense in which um, genetics tells stories that are essentially um, comforting stories because they tell us that nothing can be lost. They tell us that as long as we 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 can hold on to our genes. Um, then um, we can hold on to what, uh, going back to what you were saying a minute ago, Dave. What 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 makes us intrinsically human, and 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 that is a fallacy. That is a that is a fallacy. I mean, hu- human beings do not exist without culture. They do not exist without environments. Um, uh, uh, and and to reduce us to a code um, is 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 a total fallacy. Um, but that has an immense kind of hold on our culture, and I think there are really kind of interesting ways of 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 of, of um, sort of understanding that and coming to terms with that. Because of course, you know, in in, in the nineteenth century, the early twentieth century, um, 
science played a massive role in in the legitimation of racism um and it was genetics that was given a particularly kind of redemptive role in um proving that um there was no scientific basis for race so so the kind of unesco statements that came out post the holocaust um genetics were front and foremost in that there were other people involved um like uh, levi strauss anthropologist but centrally genetics were part of that argument that that it forms the kind of common sense of a sort of enlightened perspective on race today that race is a social construct and yet now with um genetics technologies there is an increasing kind of slippage between um scientifically legitimate ideas uh the language of population for example which is 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 a language that genetic scientists use there's a slippage between population and the disavowed illicit language of race and this this there was some controversy a few years ago with the population geneticist david reich who kind of through some slightly kind of um uh carefully worded statements made the relationship between population this legitimate scientific concept and the idea of race quite quite fuzzy um you can see always see patterns in the data you can always extrapolate with um you know through through the application of algorithms you can find patterns in that data and 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 the question which is of course always the kind of ethical uh, question around around race is what what do you do with that what do you what do you apply to that and and how does that if you like take on its own uh its own life and i think that you know, the, the sort of hubris of of genetic scientists sometimes is that they feel as if the the kind of robustness of their science is enough but actually once their science goes out into the world it takes on it has legs and i think you know going back to sort of what we need cultural studies for we need cultural studies to sort of understand the cultural valences of ideas that were born in a scientific community but then come on to have these important afterlives in um contemporary popular culture if that's a story about i suppose um science race and contemporary popular culture it can seem um i suppose a bit sort of distance from the everyday um, lived experience of prehistory's role in contemporary society. And, and there's several examples um, in, in the book of, of this more sort of everyday aspect of that. And, and one of the things um, I'm really taken with that's towards the kind of uh, second half, towards the, the, the latter parts of the book, w- w- was the sense of how we see the landscape. Um, you mentioned Stonehenge already, but, but also... Um, how people kind of interact with uh, the very idea of being English and what it means to, you know, have a sense of national identity through landscape. And, and, and I wonder, I suppose, two things about this. One, this is fairly kind of safe cultural studies territory. Um, and so where did the idea to kind of bring in ideas about prehistory and then thinking about landscape, race, geography come from? But also... Did you have fun at Stonehenge? <laughs> Which is a slightly kind of flippant question, but hopefully it gives you a way in to talk about um, the importance of that place w- within this kind of idea of um, 
because it's not actually British, is a you know almost English prehistory. Yeah, and and the, and again talking about slippages, the slippage between British and English there, I think is 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 telling. Um, to deal with your last question first, yeah, I did have lots of fun at Stonehenge. Um, I, I've been twice. Um, one once to kind of more have fun, and another time to um, take pictures. Uh, and uh, and and I'll go back again. And there is there is something what you know whatever your kind of um, investments in uh, in in. Uh, prehistory, um, there is something quite beautiful and enjoyable about um, the kind of uh, otherwise illicit and off, off, um, you know, uh, uh, roped off nature of of encountering a um, uh, a monument like like Stonehenge. Of course, there there, there are other and people would argue um, more interesting. Um, artifacts of uh prehistory within within the landscape but given that the, the as you've been alluding to the, the kind of um special um symbolic status of stonehenge in in uh, in nationalist imaginary or national imaginaries there is a sense of of um being able to be amongst and to touch the stones um and you know and to think about what people might have been doing there for uh you know four thousand years or so um it is it, it, is a kind of fun thing to to do absolutely um you know i think in in our brexit moment there are lots and lots of examples of where prehistoric monuments like stonehenge have been um harnessed to quite an exclusionary idea of of, of the nation you know there are very conservative narratives there about national identity and belonging and i think you know stonehenge in particular becomes a kind of symbol of britishness you know it gets conceived as a as a national treasure um there is a sense in which it is telling potentially quite exclusionary stories about who belongs to the landscape um who is in charge of the landscape and in, you know in the book i talk about um some some sort of images that that tell these um these stories about prehistoric continuity about racial continuity um you know they tell they tell kind of factually incorrect stories about white people's status as as more british than people of color um uh, and the relationship there between kind of landscape and belonging and i, I, I the, the the argument of course here is that nationalism is a is a recent political invention it is but a few hundred years old and nationalism attempts to capture and annex something that is is far more ancient, you know. It 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 holds prehistory hostage, and 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 there are vastly more ancient ways of thinking about identity and belonging. Now, of course, some of these are even worse, right? So the far right make claims on the the the, the prehistoric landscape. You know that the the BNP were doing it um, consistently for 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 twenty or thirty years. Um, there's a there's a more recent group called Generation Identity who talk about preserving what they call an ethno-cultural identity that they say goes back in Europe something like thirty thousand years. These are factually incorrect claims, but they are very powerful claims um, that that fascists make on territory um and um you know there have been far-right groups that have that have conducted rituals at sites like avebury and and, and wayland smithy and um so i think it's it's uh the, the, it's important to, to to kind of challenge these attempts to, to to capture the nation it's important to think about telling different stories about the landscape um and i think some of the more progressive voices will often leave those claims on the distant past unconnected 
you know, our anti-racist imaginaries are, are focused on the future, on, on the future that we all want, um, where race has has uh, been abolished or or uh, the forms of racial distinction and, and uh, inequality, inequality and disadvantages that exist now will not exist. But there's a sense in which when we focus on that future, we give over the distant past to the nationalists, the racists, the fascists, the, 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 the people that make a kind of claim on blood and soil. And actually, the argument in this, in, in this particular chapter is that we need to think about contesting those feelings of belonging and connection to the landscape. Um, and it, 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 it's the argument that our moment of ecological crisis does provide an opportunity to, to de-link the landscape from its kind of containment by nationalism and to do that through feelings of, of belonging. Um, the, Nigel Clark, a cult, very good cultural geographer, has written about the, the, the kind of turbulence and the liveliness of earth processes, the way in which the, the, the landscape can be... We can enter into dialogue with the landscape in different kinds of ways. And what, what it always reminds me of is... Um, uh, Doreen Massey's argument about the the immigrant rocks that make up Skidor, the mountain in the Lake District. Um, she says these were formed some 500 million years ago, about um, a third of the way south from the equator, and they they now are part of this kind of English national landscape. And she gives us a way of thinking in geological time, thinking in deep time, and rethinking the apparent permanence of the landscape and, and and we can we can begin to challenge who belongs to the land when the rocks that make it up if you like have their own their own migrant histories um so it, it's, it's providing some sort of different ways into thinking about the landscape and particularly about sort of challenging those proprietorial ideas about um the landscape somehow belonging intrinsically to white people which is um you know a, a fallacy the book concludes with this story of a hoax the Piltdown Man hoax um, but there's also in the middle of the book um, several discussions about things like uh, the Cheddar Man, um, Neanderthals there's also a fascinating engagement with the role of museums in constructing prehistory and, and how um, things like museums displays are, are um, implicated in, in both I suppose the kinds of um, reflection of interest in, in prehistory, but also some of the, um, as you've said, you know, it could always be worse um, kind of problematic uh, representations. And, and I wonder, to wrap up, whether you, you could give, give a sense of the book's engagement with these. I'm trying to think of, of, of how to describe them, and I, and I don't think there is a common, um, you know, name for, for how you'd link a sort of, you know, um, anthropological specimen um, through to... Um, an out and out, you know, hoax and, and, and almost the kind of cultural phenomena. But I'm fascinated by things like the Cheddar Man, the Piltdown Man, and, and, and I guess kind of why these figures are important, both um, to the times where they're discovered or, or created and, and now with us um, at the moment. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that, that's that's a big ask, and I'm going to try and, try and do it some justice. Um, so, so Cheddar Man's a great example, right? So, so, so Cheddar Man 
was, you know, going back to those kind of far right narratives about um, the, the nation um, and about who belongs to the nation. You know, Cheddar Man was claimed by the far right as an example of an Aboriginal Britain, right? This idea that that he he was an example of of um, the people who first were there in Britain after the retreat of the the glaciers at the end of the last ice age. Um, and, and Cheddar Man, by the way, is, is the um, the oldest complete skeleton ever found in Britain. So the, the bones are um, something like ten thousand years old. Um, so there's a, there's a really kind of delicious irony with Cheddar Man, whereby there's some genetic research. Again, you know, the importance of genetics to this um, this, this stuff is really really fascinating. Um, some genetic research that was done a couple of years back um, that showed that Cheddar Man, just like the Western European hunter-gatherer population that he was part of, this was all kind of very well known to, to um, specialists in the field, Cheddar Man likely had what they what they defined as dark to black skin. And there is something quite beautiful about um, what the far right had claimed to be the first Brit ending, ending up being a person of color, you know, there is, there is, there is um, a, a, a great way in which we can start to kind of retell stories about the distant past to, to kind of found different uh, futures, right? To, to, to kind of refuse um, the simplistic racist stories that, that we've been brought up with um, and to, 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 to engage prehistory differently. Um, so Cheddar Man does that, not unproblematically, and, and I go in, on in my book about the way in which uh, um, a, a kind of media telling of this just happens to leave people of colour out of that story so, so that the oldest, so, so that the, the only person of colour in this story about multicultural Britishness ends up being a 10,000 year old pile of bones. You know, there is, there is some kind of really important um, uh, issue there to do with um, who is it that gets to talk about the, the distant past, who's qualified to do that and, and um, you know, how, how you, um, how you represent um, these processes on, on, on a TV show. Um, Piltdown Man. I mean, Piltdown Man is, is um, another kind of fascinating um, example. Um, and, Piltdown Man tends to be used to tell a certain kind of story about um, science and prehistory. And, and, and I, what I try and do is, is, is to use it to tell a slightly different story. So um, Piltdown Man was the, 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 there, were, there was a, a skull, part of a, um, a jawbone that were discovered in, in Piltdown in, in Sussex uh, around uh, the um, nineteen, I think nineteen eleven, nineteen twelve, around around that time, about a hundred years ago, um, and um, this was uh, an, an incredibly, or con- con- perceived to be an incredibly important moment because it became a moment when Britain, talking about kind of national stories, um, Britain, England, slippage between the two, um, could be claimed as a site for. Um, the origination of humanity, because of course, um, Piltdown Man was was the kind of famed missing link. Piltdown Man was uh, the kind of original or uh, human or or, or, or a, an example of of um, an, an ancestor that we could all claim. And and at the time, you know, a number of particularly European nation states were invested in in being the first to 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 um, you know be, being able to make this claim on having. Aboriginal humans. Of course, the the, the story and the, the the story as it's developed, as we've come to understand, um, 
the evolution of human beings is that we are an African species. Um, and uh, But at the time, um, this was about the kind of um, vying for prominency of European uh, nation states. It fed into racist stories because the, the, the prominent kind of... Um, uh, the, the, the experts of the day um, were fully schooled in in, in ideas that um, the, the white Western people somehow represented kind of the apex of humanity and uh, people in other places were kind of uh, at an evolutionary lesser stage. Um, it was also, you know, you, you can also read it in terms of um, t- telling kind of quite normative stories about, about gender too. But the point about, Piltdown Man is that it was a hoax. It was made up. So, so the person that put the put the bones into the uh, the soil in Piltdown um, was a, um, a a local um, a local man, quite low in status compared with the rest of the scientific community, and he w- he was attempting to kind of bolster his own kind of status and and, and credibility. Um, a man called Charles Dawson, who 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 per- perpetrated all kinds of weird hoaxes as well um, around, around other things. But what was interesting about this, and I think what what is kind of diagnostically interesting about this for for the story of the book, is that it it, it sort of draws our attention to the question about well, what what is a hoax? You know, a hoax is a lie that is believed. A hoax is not objectively true but in order to function as a hoax it has to fit in with the cultural orthodoxies of its day um so a hoax can be diagnostic because it tells us that the definition of truth depends on it fitting in with these cultural orthodoxies it helps to remind us that while current scientific knowledge always has the status of truth yesterday's scientific knowledge is always understood to be flawed um, shaped by the cultural orthodoxies, shaped by the the prejudices of its day, and so Piltdown Man paints this kind of vivid picture of twentieth century nationalism, of sexism, of racism, because it's telling in science and then in popular culture paints that really vivid picture of the the accepted truths of its day, which we have now since come to understand as untrue it reveals how apparently objective truths are the product of a particular time and place. And so the, if you like, the the kind of intentional fiction of the hoax reveals the unintentional fictions of the day. And partly my interest in this is because science will always exonerate itself on its own terms. You know, the scientific method is, is, is about claiming the understanding of, of, of what is true at a particular moment is contingent and subject to change. But but science and the scientific community will often skip over facing up to the embeddedness of science in the in the prejudices of the day. Um, and I think the the example of Piltdown Man is a kind of way into understanding the way in which um, our understanding of, of, of prehistory um, is always shaped by contemporary culture. And so in order to understand what prehistory means, we need to kind of understand um, how it is working in contemporary culture. You know, we're not dealing with facts. We're dealing with the way in which facts always get caught up in values and are always being used to tell very kind of important stories. Um, and, and, and in this book, you know, what, what more important stories could there be than stories about human identity um, who we are um, and what we are capable of. Which I, I think is a fantastic summary of, of the kind of key 
um, themes and, and the sort of big idea of the book. And, and in that context, it seems almost a bit kind of mean to say to you, so what are you going to do next, <laughs> given you've written a book that's grappling with, you know, such sort of um, big uh, questions. But it struck me when reading this, it, it was the sort of book that you could launch you know, a real sort of research agenda from actually. And, and, and you know, even as we've discussed this, we, we've we've not touched on all, you know, kinds of different things that the book um, is engaging with and, and different case studies and, and examples that are in the book. Um, and, and so is there a, a sort of a next stage of this agenda for you? Or is there a, I guess, a sense of kind of having... Um, almost kind of settled accounts with prehistory and, and, and then might you move on to something completely different? Well, good question. I mean, t- t- to me, writing is all about being bothered by things and, and wanting to know more about them. And there were some specific things I wanted to deal with here. Like I said at the start, thinking about the relationship between biology, biology and culture, um, sort of getting to grips, I think, as somebody who who's kind of trained in the humanities and social sciences to kind of understanding better some of that hard science stuff. Um that that was part of part of the project. Um and I think, you know, this connects to my broad, broader project, which is about understanding race better as an organizing organizing device in our culture. So my previous book, Consuming Race, was an attempt to show how race is caught up in ordinary practices of, of, of everyday life and and to make the case for a, a better understanding of this in order to better tackle racism discrimination and, and racialized inequality and i think that's what this book's about too it's needing to get to grips with if you like the racialization of the human how race is central to the definition of human identity human origins and human characteristics um so there's a lot more there right (laughs) um there's a lot that's come up that i'd like to know a lot a lot more about so um something we haven't talked about is topic of race and air pollution this is a a topic i write about a little bit in the book um that i think is really important and i've been doing a lot of reading in in relation to this um the dynamics of environmental racism the resurgence of discussion of population change that's a kind of politically important thing that i'd like to do um I've also, in the course of researching and writing this, made some met some really lovely people who work in archaeology, who work in genetics, um, and I found actually sort of moving out of uh, out of my comfort zone in 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 the sort of humanities social sciences, um, an incredibly. Um, uh, yeah, it's been incredibly productive, and I'd love to do something collaborative with people working on prehistory. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of open to seeing where this where this will go. There, there are an increasing number of people, I think, who who are, if you like, professional prehistorians that kind of understand the cultural importance of what they do and and and, and the stakes of this um, in terms of the the, the kind of politicisation of of um, the prehistoric. So, um, you know. Um, we will see where that goes.